So we're starting a new sermon series in 1 John, and we're going to be reading from the first chapter all the way through to chapter 2, verse 2. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we, lo- if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins, and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you, so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Well, in our Christian walk, do you feel as as the years roll on and the worries of the world build up, and the confidence you first had as a Christian might be ebbing away. Is that something you've experienced? Do you long for more certainty and confidence that Jesus really is in control? Are there times when you wonder if God truly loves you, or is it just a wish you're holding on to? Do you ever doubt that you have eternal life? These questions that take us... Uh, I think, honestly, in, in the, my experience as a Christian and with others as well, that our Christian lives at points can feel like that game of Jenga. You know, everything's stacked up, but just moving one piece or one that's going to come out can feel like the whole thing might tumble and crash down. And if you do feel like that, whether it's at the moment or whether you've been in seasons where it feels like that, you are not alone. You're not alone. The readers of 1 John experienced this same doubt, these same questions. They'd heard the gospel of Jesus, they'd believed he was the Christ, the Son of God, but like us, they lived in a world that ate away at their confidence in different ways. In their case, it's worldly desires and false teachers that threaten their faith. What is it that eats at your faith, that chips away, that causes the wobble to turn into that persistent rumbling quake that shakes your trust in God. 
The Apostle John, one of Jesus' closest disciples, knew um, the Christians spread out in the churches around Asia Minor, what we know as modern-day Turkey, that, that they needed encouragement and assurance. He knew that was his work. And between 70 AD to 90 AD, the, the seeds, the roots of persecution were starting to spread particularly for Christians. They'd been scattered from Jerusalem. They're throughout the Roman Empire. And John, one of the last surviving apostles, was living in Ephesus, a major hub city in Turkey. And he was overseeing the churches of that area. You read about them in the opening chapters of Revelation, the seven churches mentioned there. And he wrote this letter, a circular letter, to those churches, probably between 80 to 85 A.D., where more congregations were made up of second and third generation believers. And so that squeeze of persecution, or for others, the initial thrill of their faith, was ebbing. The flame of devotion to Christ was flickering. And on top of that, false teachers were infiltrating the church. And some Christians were becoming lax in their moral obedience to God. And into this situation, John... The caring pastor writes this letter to his dear children. That phrase comes up, it's repeated throughout the letter. I'd encourage you in your own time, whether that's today, this evening, or during the week, just read through 1 John in one sitting. Read it a couple of times. See the repetitions, the themes that come out. But dear children is front and center. He knows the challenges they face. And so this letter is a balm, it's medicine. It's a word into that quaking feeling where our trust feels shaken, where we're hungry for certainty. And as we study this letter together and work through it as a church family, I'm expectant the Holy Spirit will bring us certainty. A confidence that says you are in this world with me. Things are not out of control. Your questions are big. They're significant. They're real, but there are answers. And we walk by Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to know that John's aim is to provide hope that will impact our lives. And he's doing that because that is Jesus' aim. 1 John 5.13, you can hold this verse in mind as a bit of a North Star as to why he wrote the letter. I write these things to you who believe in that the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. I write these things so that you who believe in the name of the Son of God may know you have eternal life. So let's dive into that. And the first point to look at as we look at these verses here in chapter 1, verses, uh, verse 1 through to 2, 2, just two sections I'm going to look at, verses 1 to 4, and then verses 5 through to verse 2 of chapter 2. You know when something's really important, don't you? When someone bursts in and they just start sharing what's on their mind. You know it's an important thing. It could be uh, football results. It might be something that they've recently bought or passing exams or completing a work deadline. The good news just can't stay in. They just dive straight into it. I've got to tell you something that I was going through the other day or this happened to me at work. And John's letter, I hope you notice that, it just opened straight away. There's no sort of uh, comments of, dear friends, grace and peace to you, those sort of things. Maybe they were there at one point, and because this is a circular letter, the circular letter to different churches, the person who's reading it would have given those introductory comments. But here we're just thrown straight in. The urgent message that's on John's heart and mind in verse 1 about the word of life. 
And immediately we should be asking, well, who or what is this word of life? Have your eyes down in verses 1 to 3 there. It's something that was there before creation, that which was from the beginning. It's something that can be heard, so it's a message. But it's something seen, something even touched. And as we scan through to verse 3, it becomes clear that the word of life clearly refers to Jesus Christ, the eternal Son who was with the Father from the beginning. It's what Jesus proclaimed at the graveside of his close friend, Lazarus. He said there in John 11:25, so in the Gospel of John, Jesus' words are, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. The word of life, therefore, is Jesus, both the preacher of God's message and he is the message itself. In him, the message of eternal life takes concrete form in real flesh on earth. John goes straight into that. From cosmic to earth. The word of life as a person here with us. The actor and star of Stranger Things, Winona Ryder, in an interview shared this, that religion is a fiction. I've read the Bible. It's a great book, but it's a novel. She captures an opinion that's shared by many, many over the decades, many now, recently. Isn't the Bible just a collection of myths and legends, just stories to make you feel nice, maybe some with a bit of a moral to teach you something? But John says a heartfelt no. No, it's not. Verse 1, we have heard, we've seen, we've looked at, we've touched. This is no made-up legend. John is engaging with and refuting, at this point, the other versions and stories that false teachers were circulating. Stories that suggested that Christ was never human. They denied the real humanity of Jesus. They said Jesus was from God, but then denied he was God in human flesh. Others, like uh, Serinthus, a contemporary of John's, taught that because all matter, like bodies, are evil but the spirit is good, then Jesus was an ordinary man who had God's spirit just for a short time, but the spirit then left before he died on a cross because obviously the spirit being good can't be associated with anything like suffering or punishment. These were subtle adaptations that were coming from the thoughts of those who hadn't seen, touched, or heard but we're looking for a way to get a reputation. But John was there. He experienced Jesus personally, tangibly real. He ate with Jesus. John talked to him. He saw Jesus healing people with a touch. He saw him sleeping in a boat in a storm and then calming waves with a word. He brought a dead man back to life out of a tomb with a word. This Jesus was brutally executed, then shocked everyone, John included, by coming back to life. We have to consider that many of the eyewitnesses of Jesus' ministry were either imprisoned or executed. John's life ends in old age, separated from his church, isolated and dying on a Roman prison camp in Patmos. You've got to ask yourself, if this was all a lie and the closest followers knew it, why did they die for it? Why would you put yourself through such suffering and agony for a lie that you know is a lie? 
It's one thing to die for something you truly believe. It's another thing to suffer and die for something you know is false. It's fascinating. This week I was just so encouraged. On Thursday we had a prayer meeting that was on Zoom. Uh, a roundtable meeting with Radstock Ministries, who's one of our mission partners, and we particularly support a work that's happening in Kashmir, gospel ministry there. And it is wonderful to have these updates from mission partners. I do love being encouraged by their work. So please do take one of those bookmarks Tim mentioned about to prompt your prayers. But on Thursday, we were having a prayer meeting uh, with Radstock Ministries, and there are pastors and church planters and people from uh, different parts of Northern Europe coming together. I was particularly moved to hear of those working in Poland at the moment. One pastor who had his church in Ukraine and had to flee from there, Russian-speaking, Belarusian, who is reaching Russian speakers in Ukraine, and he is now pastoring in Poland with a, a church that's reaching Russian-speaking people in Poland with the gospel. He had to flee because he'd been arrested by the KGB, had been obviously investigated and um, cross-examined and released, but then knew was going to be arrested again, and they knew they had to get out with his family because he wouldn't have come back from that second arrest. Fascinating. This is a chap who's never seen Jesus in the flesh and yet is prepared to put his life and his family on the line for the sake of helping Russian-speaking people hear the gospel of Christ. John saw John touched, and he says, trust us, we have the truth. And I'm in a prison of war, Roman camp, dying in my late 80s, and I see Jesus more clearly now than I ever have. Because that's what you see when you read Revelation. And John brought us that through the Spirit. Although we have not seen Jesus as the apostle did, we can have confidence in their testimony. Look at verse 3. What's John's reason for sharing this eternal life? We proclaim to you that what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ. You see, fellowship, partnership is the goal. It's a word that means an unshakable partnership. It's used of intimate relationships like marriage, but it's also used, that word fellowship, for business partnerships where there's shared commitment there's investment everyone's got skin in the game so to speak and interestingly john says the way to fellowship with god is through the eyewitnesses we're drawn into a tight family union with the apostles and through them we're united to god because of their testimony that we believe it's interesting. He could have written it the other way around, but he doesn't. He says, the apostolic testimony, the word they're sharing, is the way we have fellowship with God. Now, let's be clear. We're not second-class citizens. We have the same loving approval and forgiveness from God. We truly know God as Father. We pray directly to him through Christ in the Spirit. We hear him in his word. He lives in us by his Spirit, and that gift comes through the apostles trustworthy gospel message. There is no other way to join into genuine membership in Christ's body than believing this apostolic word, this message of good news given to us. 
We shouldn't settle for anything less or try to get that unity in other ways, whether that's a unity based on church traditions or certain spiritual experiences or just a social common interest. That's not how it comes. Genuine membership is through believing the apostles' word, what we have here in Scripture. And true unity, grounded in the gospel, brings joy. Did you notice that in verse 4? What's John's emotional state at this point? He is delighted by the fellowship he shares with Christians. He is, here is the pastor's heart. He cannot be completely happy, literally permanently filled with joy, until some of those he leads and looks after are, are experiencing the full blessing and joy of a relationship with Jesus. His joy is linked to theirs. That's the pastor's heart. That's the Christian's heart who cares for one another. How are you doing in the Lord? Do you trust him? Are you walking with him? What are your doubts? What are your questions? It matters to us because we are united in fellowship, united in partnership to Christ. That's a deep joy. This isn't just a ticking the boxes exercise on what doctrines you know and don't know. This is real life, real heart. And brothers and sisters, we have a solid foundation for our faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which John shares for us so that we know that life, so that we know that joy, and no one can steal it or drain it. The Holy Spirit will keep us in his joy. A fellow prisoner of the German pastor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I was wondering, David, if you can um, flick up the slide, that, the slide, that would be helpful. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who I've mentioned before, he was uh, part of the uh, evangelical church in Nazi Germany, and he wouldn't go along with the mainstream church that basically essentially supported the Nazi regime. And so there was this underground church movement that he started and was training pastors throughout Germany to carry on gospel ministry. He was arrested for this because he also, um, very, it was a very big decision, very hard one for him to make, but he was involved in a plot to assassinate um, Hitler, and he was arrested because of that. In the prison camp, one of the fellow prisoners said of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he always seemed to me to spread the very atmosphere of happiness over the least instance. He is one of the very few persons I have met for whom God was real and always near. Isn't that remarkable? I appreciate the current times give us a lot of reasons to be anxious and uncertain, and yet God has given us all we need to have hearts that are captivated by him. Isn't it a massive encouragement that our feelings are not the foundation or the test of genuine faith. We all have moments of spiritual flatness. Even some of us wrestle with bouts of serious depression and anxiety which affect our walk with the Lord. But the wonder of John's message is that whether we are emotionally flat or absolutely pumped up, the word of God taken to heart is fellowship with God and it is the source of our joy. Amen, indeed. You see, when you read some of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's letters from prison, you see he had very dark days. You see worry. 
you see fear. You see him asking questions about his family and will they be looked after. It wasn't a rose-tinted, floating through the, the atmosphere of a prison camp sort of experience because Jesus is, is there. Jesus is there in the grit and the darkness. And yet others saw the authenticity of Bonhoeffer's faith and knew God was real and near. Isn't that something? The joy that's infectious. So with John, let us enjoy the privilege of helping others encounter the eternal life given by Jesus that's brought with him and each other into this partnership, this fellowship. What's that going to look like for you this week? Who would you love to see them sharing that joy? What are the situations you're going to this week which makes that Jenga tower feel like, oh my gosh, is it all just going to collapse? What are the things you're walking through at the moment, pastorally, the things that are deep on your heart and mind, which you just feel, God, this feels way too big for you. Will you uphold me? Will you strengthen me? Go to him with those. And as we do that, let's look at this second part, walking with God as forgiven children, because... If we're serious about walking in fellowship with one another, John is serious about tackling the difficult subject of sin. Now, six months after the terrorist attack on the World Trade Center, uh, again, Dave, if you can just flick this on, there should be an image. Um, there were two towers seen in Manhattan. Uh, there's nothing on there, okay? That's my fault. I've obviously misprepared my slides. Sorry about that. But if you Google this, you'll see the image. At the World Trade Center, there's two towers that went up near ground zero. This time, they weren't made out of concrete and steel and glass structure. No, it was light. Two towers of pure light going up into the night sky. And it was a tribute of light that lasted 32 days. These beams were from 88 searchlights that reached four miles into the sky. It was the most powerful shaft of lights that had been projected from the earth. And it was a way to remember all the lost lives. It was a way of signifying something about hope in darkness, that the darkness wouldn't prevail. And light is powerful, as Jez said in that introduction. Because we've all experienced uh, darkness, haven't we? When those columns of light went up in Manhattan, I wondered whether people were triggered to think of God. Because what do we read here in this letter? This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. You see, in this letter, if you want two sort of hooks to hang the letter on, I mean, there's far more that you can do as well in terms of the structure, but two things here. God is light and God is love. That is what John really unpacks and explores. God is light here and God is love in chapter four. It's something that is a truth that he didn't just think up, but it's a message he heard from Jesus. God's nature is to reveal himself. That is what light does. Jesus called himself the light of the world in John 8, 12. So whenever we walk in God's light, we can link it to him telling us truth, to showing us something about him and showing something about us. But light also has this ethical dimension, which is clear in verses 6 to 10 here. There's purity. 
truth and light. And it's in contrast, isn't it, in those verses with sin, with lies, with darkness. So in John 3, verse 19, in the gospel, Jesus taught, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved the darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into it for fear that his deeds will be exposed. You see, God is perfect and holy. Jesus is the light that brings moral judgment. But that leaves us in a tight spot, doesn't it? Jesus is the light. He sees everything. There is this moral, ethical dimension to it at the front and center of it as truth. Where does that leave us? How is fellowship with God in verses 1 and 4 made possible? Well, John has to tackle this head on, and he does it by looking at three errors, three claims that these false teachers, these pseudo-Christians, were bringing into the fellowship. And the claims are there in verses 6, 8, and 10. You can see those in those verses. Firstly, verse 6, if we claim to have fellowship with him, God, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. This is to say that sin doesn't matter. The idea of walking means moving in a certain direction, doesn't it? If the kids run out to kids' group, they go in one direction. Their legs are carrying them quickly to that spot. And the direction here is either with God or away from him. A person can say they believe and know God, but if they are persisting in sin, they are a walking contradiction. It'd be like a person eating junk food and lying on their sofa all day for eight weeks and saying, I'm in training for the London Marathon. It's not happening, is it? Or as soon as you start, you're going to be having a heart attack. You see, when we read verse 7, the emphasis is on fellowship as well with one another. And this shows the lies that these Christians, these pseudo-Christians, these teachers were bringing in, was actually dividing the Christian community. So actually the sin there at that moment is one of breaking up Christian fellowship. It's complete opposite of what John's message does, of what God intends. There's no genuine care here for the other believers. That is a sin. And then the next claims in verse 8, if we claim to have literally no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And again in verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. These are refusals to accept our naturally corrupt, selfish nature and the ongoing guilt and presence of the sins we continue to commit. These so-called Christians are entangled in their own lies, in their own delusion, and they go so far as to say, God is the liar. Can you see how just sin and darkness just breeds more and more of the same? And we can't see it. We have blind spots. We say, they'd be saying, no, this is a really higher spiritual path to take. We, we don't, we're not chained down by this sin. Don't talk about that. They were spreading a message that had no place for sin, no need for forgiveness, no need for purity. It's a message that continues to find mass appeal today, isn't it? Both in church as well as in society. The things we approve, we being Christians, the church in the UK, the things we say that, oh, it doesn't really matter that are contrary to God's word. This should grieve us. 
Lord, have mercy. The fact that sin is something we struggle to deal with shows how much we need God's light. We need the solution he gives. There's a film called Phone Booth, which I think is one of Colin Farrell's good ones. It was when he was younger. And his character is imprisoned in a phone box in the middle of... You, some of you might be going, what are phone boxes? They're things that in the olden days, you used to open the door, go in, pick up a phone, and actually dial numbers on it and speak to someone and you had to put coins in to operate it. Anyway, he's in one of those. You won't find them around anymore. But, um, and he's in there, trapped by an unseen sniper who is threatening him to come clean about his immoral, selfish way of life. Now, yes, the film explores moral responsibility, and it is intriguing how it does that, but it does it with a moralist who is psychopathic and armed with a long-range rifle. Now, leaving, it sort of leaves the impression that people who take sin seriously or things that are wrong are mentally and emotionally unhinged. And I think there's a bit of that in the culture today. Why have you got such a problem with that stuff? You shouldn't worry about it. But authentic Christians are not deluded about sin, and neither is God an unhinged judge taking pot shots at someone. John doesn't airbrush sin out of his message because Jesus didn't airbrush sin. Sin cannot be denied. It cannot be indulged, can it? And John's aim is clear here in, in chapter 2, verse 1. My dear children, I write this so that you will not sin. What he's showing us here is to motivate a change of behavior. John knows we do sin, sometimes terribly. These are sins that damage us and damage our relationship with God, with each other. They undermine our assurance. I'm not going to give you a list because it's so personal as well. There'll be different things that you're struggling with. As soon as I say one thing, you go, well, I'm fine because I don't deal with that. There'll be specific things in your life that you know that are in the light, that are painful, that are damaging. But he also, John writing, doesn't just leave us there. He gives us power to live in freedom. Power by focusing on the provision that God has given us in the death of Christ. Amen? Jesus' death alone, what are we told? Verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 9, provides a way for sinners to be forgiven and purified from all unrighteousness. Jesus' death is seen in his blood shed. Why does he mention blood? A, because he saw it on the cross. B, because death and blood go together in the Bible, because there's a payment. This isn't a fiction. Jesus paid the price of judgment for our sin. He cleansed us of our moral guilt so that we can be in fellowship with him, with God, Father, Son, and Spirit. <sighs> what a solution. And you know his death removed the reality of God's measured, patient, holy anger. That word for atoning sacrifice in our English, in the Greek, is propitiation. It's a word people want to run away from because they don't like the idea of God being angry. But we've got to wrestle with that. We have a father who loves us so much that the sin he sees angers him, and it needs to be removed. And together, the Father, Son, and Spirit, unified, offer this free gift of forgiveness for the whole world through the death of the Son. 
verses 9 and 10 of chapter 4 tell us, we'll get to this later, that the Father in love sent his Son to be an atoning sacrifice. We don't have a cold-hearted, mean-spirited God, angry. We have a Father who in his love hates sin and does something about it, and the Son willingly saying, send me, I'll go, and the Spirit saying, I will apply this to all who believe. Amen. And so a hallmark of true believers walking in the light and in fellowship with God, the hallmark of it in verse 9 is that we acknowledge and confess our sins. We don't run. We don't hide it up. We don't deny it. That is a hallmark of authentic Christianity. We own it. It is a commitment to live the examined life, not hiding, but being exposed by God's light being forgiven and restored by him. One writer put it like this. The Christian is like the person walking onto a dark stage, if you can picture that, and a circle of light, the spotlight, is focused on them. And to live in the spotlight is to be exposed, isn't it? You've got nowhere to hide. You're wanting to live a life that is compatible with being in the light. And that starts by prayerfully admitting, Lord, that was sin. Lord, I recognize for it for what it was, what I was doing, what I was thinking, what I was saying. I'm guilty. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Please give me the power of your spirit to live obediently and not to compromise the identity you've given me as your child. But that spotlight picture only goes so far. Biblically speaking, the spotlight isn't a detached mechanical tool. It's a person. It's Jesus Christ who truly knows us and still lovingly walks with us, who purifies and forgives us because he lived and died for us. And we're not on the stage alone. It'd be easy to think this is all about us. But actually, there are loads of spotlights. There are loads of people walking around in that light. It's called church. And we're there together to help forgiven sinners keep walking in the light. Keep being real about our sin. And there is a place for wise and appropriate support of each other as we pursue holiness. We were looking at that in our friendship series. We want to mature as believers. Verse 9 here in chapter 1 assumes that confession is direct to God, not to a priest, not to a fellow Christian. And yet, and yet, there are times when speaking to someone... Owning that publicly is important. It's right. It's helpful. James mentions that in his letter. There are times for confessing sin to each other, especially when it is a public sin, especially when it is something that has brought the gospel into disrepute in a public way, especially when it is leaders of the church. But don't despair. This morning, don't drown in your sin. God's desire is to rid you and me of that punishment, that guilt, that shame of sin. Let sin drive you to Jesus, not away from him. Know the assurance that the blood of Christ shed once for all, in time, has the power to cleanse you and keep you for all time. The blood of Christ shed once for all in time on the cross has the power to cleanse you and me, to keep us in him for all time.
I think the one slide that I really wanted to end on is on the PowerPoint. And it's a prayer that Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote when he was in prison. I'm not going to say it out loud. I want you to read it. I don't even think it's perfect by any means. You can see the wrestling in there. In me there is darkness, and here's a man living in the light of Christ, aware of his sin. Read it. Meditate on it in a moment of quiet, and then I'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we confess our need of your faithful, just, loving forgiveness for our sins. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you made us for yourselves. Thank you, Lord, that you know the way for each of us. And Lord, as we live out in your world, give us this deep joy that comes from fellowship in Christ Jesus, from trusting and believing this good news, which has changed our lives for eternity. Father, I pray for Grace Church. We are a bunch of saved sinners. We're forgiven. We're flawed. We're trying to do things your way, but we will mess it up. And so, Father, I pray, don't take your light away. Shine it more brightly on us, that we would see who we truly are in Christ, that you would give us patience to be a forgiving church to one another, not judgmental. That, Father, we would offer forgiveness to those who, as of yet, don't know Christ. And we pray that more people in this city would know the freedom from guilt, shame, and sin, from the judgment that their sin deserves. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, may they know that freedom and help us to be a church that will not hide that away, no matter how painful it becomes, no matter how sidelined or ostracized we might be with other Christians. And Father, I pray for those around the world today. We think of our brothers and sisters in China, in Indonesia, in Malaysia, in Southeast Asia, in parts of the world where it is very hard to be a Christian. We think of those in Northern Europe, for Pastor Taros in, in Poland. Lord, strengthen them that they too would proclaim this glorious life-giving message today and for the rest of their lives as we wait for Christ's return. Amen.